A word of warning to our listeners. We experienced some technical difficulties when recording this episode, so we apologize for any disjointed audio that you might hear. There'll be food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. Welcome to Fear Feasts. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Ali, and we're your hosts. Ali, how are you? Vanessa, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to temptation. How are you? <laughs> I don't know my Bible as well as you. I'm sorry. You've missed me, haven't you? I've Say, missed tell you me. terribly. You've missed me. <laughs> in the beginning, there was light. There was light. And the reason I know in the beginning was the word is because I was just recently rereading uh, The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. And that's oh. how that book starts. And I was just, the, I've read that book so many times that I think, oh, in the beginning was the word. So there, there's my scripture. Uh, just a light book for you. Yeah, it did. <laughs> let's, not, let's not get into Umberto Eco. Not yet. Not yet anyway, exactly. <laughs> no, those words were from um, a character in the film and book that we'll be looking at today, um, the mother of the main character. Yes. So it's going to be the devil's advocate. Film was produced, was directed in 1997, and the book was also written in 1997 or was published in 1997. So mm -hmm. both came out the same year. Yes. Mm. Yes. And I believe the movie was directed by Taylor Hackford, who is married to one of my favorite actresses, uh, the beautiful Helen Mirren. No, I pretty I have sure. no idea. Are they still married? Oh. I'm pretty sure Taylor Hackford and Helen Mirren are, are, uh, are spouses. Oh, wow. I know. Right. He's not yeah. like, um, Michael, what's his face. Um, that puts, <laughs> call him Michael. What's his name? It is Michael. The one who's married to, um, the actress that does all his films, like the blind manor, harsh, um, oh, you're talking films. about Mike Flanagan and Kate. Mike Siegel. Flanagan, that's and it. Kate so he hasn't put Helen Mirren in any of his films. I don't know. I have to go yeah. and look. But yeah, mm. I'm. But anyway, yeah, I thought that, I, I just thought that was interesting because you know I love her so much, and when I when I grow up, I want to be Helen Mirren. So yeah, so The Devil's Advocate, the movie starring Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves and Charlize Theron, excellent yes. movie. One of my one of my favorites from the late '90s, and it it is very much a late '90s film. You can tell when you watch it. And then yeah. yes, we're doing the book as well, based on the book by Andrew Niederman. And Ali, do you want to go ahead and give the synopsis of the movie, and then I'll do the book? Yeah, sure. So, and by the way, this Andrew Niederman book is so difficult to get hold of. I just want to say that. Oh, I know. <laughs> And I have no idea why. It made it really kind of intriguing. I was just trying everywhere. Where can I get it? Where can I get it? It's very hard up, to get. You ended up getting it and reading it in Spanish, right? I had to read it in Spanish from well. an online free library and I found it finally, but it was really, <laughs> really hard. Okay, so The Devil's Advocate is um, a story about a defense attorney. He's called Kevin. And now I need to talk about Kevin because why we, we would need, devil... we need to We need to talk about Kevin, Ellie. <laughs> Why would the devil, why the devil would the devil uh, call his son Kevin? But anyway, I think he has a sense of humor, humor this devil. Um, maybe so maybe he watched Home Alone too many times. Yeah, yeah, big fan. <laughs> <laughs> there are quite lots of Kevins actually now. Sorry, nothing against any Kevin. It's a great name. It just seems like an unusual choice for the son of a, of a, of a devil. My brother's, name, my brother's name is Kevin. 
Sorry. This no, is like, Alistair, you're tricking me. <laughs> Like the last days of Jack's Parks. Yes, and your brother, your your brother's named Alistair. It was like, yeah. oh, sorry, no, my, my I have two brothers, and either one of them is named Kevin. So don't I worry. You. You I had to get back. back at you for that one because you really. Now, now we're even, no more. I know. <laughs> so he's a lawyer. He's such a great lawyer. He's the kind of lawyer I would like to have on my side because he doesn't break the law, but he has not lost a single case in his whole career, mm. and he uses. Like, I want to say it's nearly like a power that he has. He's just so good at winning. And he's fighting for a teacher accused of molesting his student. And the teacher wins a case. And this is a really great scene, by the way, because there are some really weird things that happen. And he notices while he's defending his client that the client is like really guilty. There's like a margin of doubt where do we, is he aware how of how bad his client really is or is he not but there is a moment in in the film that really shows that he realizes just how bad this this teacher is um and that the student is in the right Mm -hmm. but he is approached by new york's uh, leading firm a new great job offer and he and his wife mary um is it marianne it's marianne it's Marianne in the film and it's Miriam in the book. So Marianne, yes. they start a new life and it's a very luxurious life. And um, and so Kevin starts having feelings for a co-worker and then we'll get to know more about her. She's called Christabella. And Kevin becomes very, very busy in his work life and he has very little time for his wife. And this makes her sad. And I'm just keeping it, you know, in a nutshell. And then mm-hmm. Kevin is given a case of a billionaire who's accused of murdering his family members. And then it goes down from there and we get to like an escalation of events where Kevin kind of finds out that the man who is in charge of this firm is also his father, basically. And he's and also mm-hmm. the devil. So it's like double plot. Twist. Double whammy. But also there's uh, the mother who is and I thought that was and I don't know if it's the same in the book, but the mother was with the with the devil and that's how she gave birth to Kevin and the mother is a very pious woman and very religious and she is the one who says those those initial words that I wanted to bestow upon you thank you Um, (laughs) wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to temptation and I'm just going to say now I don't really like people who quote from the bible just know it's weird behold I'm sending you out as sheep amongst the wolves. So no, the, the movie, The Devil's Advocate, a great movie. Uh, Al Pacino plays the John Milton, which again, I thought was some very interesting uh, Judeo-Christian symbolism, you know, you know, uh, Milton, Paradise Lost, yep. the Tale of, of Satan. Um, Keanu Reeves plays Kevin Lomax, the defense attorney who comes to find out he's made the ultimate deal with the devil. And Charlize Theron plays his wife, Marianne. Excellent movie, excellent cast. Um, so the book, so the book was written, I believe, in the same year that the movie came out, and it's written fairly. How can I say this? I I didn't much I didn't care for the prose style, but the story itself is quite interesting. So, in in the book, Kevin Taylor is a defense attorney in Florida, and he he has never lost a case. And so he is chosen by Milton uh, Chadwick Associates to go work in New York City. So it follows the basic same plot line, except for the fact that when, and so his wife's name is Miriam in the book. So when they get to- Oh, and something else that really intriguing is 
that that I wonder what the reason was because mm-hmm. they changed it so radically is that in the film it's te- the teacher is male but in the in the book it's a yeah. female teacher mm-hmm. who's abusing a student so okay. so the so yeah so Kevin in the book starts out by defending uh I believe it's a junior high teacher who is a lesbian and of course you have to remember this was the late 90s so you know the attitudes toward homosexuality uh, were not as I think as open-minded as they are now so this this teacher is accused of fondling a female student and Kevin basically kind of tears her apart the student on the on the stand um then he you know he wins the case but then you know he, he he so he doesn't have any real guilt about how he goes about winning the case he and i think that you see this in the movie and the book as well kevin his attitude toward the law and legalities is is it's mm. really for him it's it is like he's kind of playing a game he's not really thinking about right or wrong or who's innocent or who's guilty and i i, I don't know a lot about the law criminal law but i uh i do know that i do know somebody who is a defense attorney and we had a conversation about this once and he said, it, you don't really think about right or wrong, good or bad. He said, everybody has the right for a legal defense. He said, and that's where you're thinking of it. And you're thinking about winning for your client. You're not thinking, is this person right or wrong? He said, and he said, you know, you can take that for whatever it's worth. So I, I really do think to be a good defense attorney, it's probably, you probably just have a certain mindset. I think I would never want to be a defense attorney, but anyway, so uh kevin is um headhunted by this very high-end law firm in new york city run by john milton and he is basically chosen to head up their criminal department it's a uh in in the movie and in the book the law firm has its fingers in all sorts of international you know there's maritime law there's all sorts of things they don't have a they don't have a criminal defense department and in the movie i thought it was interesting because al pacino basically says you know we you know we our clients do do wrong things just like anybody else and they you know so yeah so that's kind of how the story progresses uh what i thought was interesting about the book is that it does diverge pretty significantly um in the sense of the wife kevin's wife in the book she loves their life in new york city like it's it's weird in the movie it's almost like they reversed their roles so Charlize Theron in the movie you know she she's portrayed as a fairly insecure kind of fragile person she's very yeah. kind of easily led and and you know she's very much out of her depth in New York with these wealthy lawyers um wives befriending her and she's yes. befriended by the the wealthy wives in the book but she kind of turns into like a different person you know she's very happy in New York she's happy you know going out and spending money and and going shopping with her friends and um yeah and she she's not interested in having children which is a, a very interesting plot uh plot line change that was really fascinating so you want really? to talk about that I was not expecting that because mm-hmm. that is a big 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 thing in the yeah. film the fact that they plan to have a baby the fact mm-hmm. that they want to have a child and actually with those wives that you mentioned mm-hmm. he goes out with them and she has like this weird relationship where she's trying to fit in but they're very different to her and she actually starts hallucinating things and I don't know if it's mm-hmm. the same in the book where she sees their face change um, yeah yeah and so they say to her look here now that you're what the wife of a successful lawyer in New York this is what you have three choices you can either work play or breed mm-hmm. and it's like they make a big thing about the whole breeding thing mm-hmm. that they yeah. yeah. 
So that's so, interesting. Yeah. And so from a kind of a domestic viewpoint and a, and a food aspect, what's interesting in the book, and you kind of see this portrayed in the movie as well, is that in the book, so because she, you know, Marianne, I think we've talked about this in previous episodes, you know, food tends to tie in much more with the, um, with the females when it comes to horror, because so much of, of female oriented horror takes place in the home, in the kitchen, uh, if not the bedroom. And it's no different here in the book, you know, Marianne originally is, um, you know, enjoys cooking. She's a good wife to Kevin. She loves him when she goes to New York and they start earning money from Ke all these cases that Kevin is, is winning in this wealthy lifestyle that they're leading. She stops cooking. She basically says, mm. you know, she's everything she cooks for him is in the microwave. So one of the food scenes in the book that stood out to me is takes place actually a little bit later in the action. It's when Kevin has fully, you know, become part of the firm and started defending these this this these wealthy clients, you know, in these criminal cases. And his wife, Miriam, has befriended these wealthy lawyers' wives and started spending a lot of her time with them, going to the gym, shopping, spending money. She doesn't cook anymore. She basically makes all these microwavable meals for him. So there's a section where they start talking about actually moving into a bigger apartment and um so she basically says well our friends are going to be our friends are going to be having babies you know they, they keep talking about us having babies and you know i'm not ready to have a child but I'm, she said um so she basically when he comes they're having this conversation on the phone and kevin you know at this point in the book is he's he's starting to see what's going on with the law the law firm but he's also starting to see these strange changes in his wife so the passage reads, when he came home from the office that night, he found she had prepared a home-cooked meal. She had her hair brushed back and straight the way he liked it instead of wearing it in that new crimped style. She wore a little makeup and she had put on one of her older dresses. The table was set and they would eat by candlelight. I thought you might be a little tense and would want to relax at home, she told him. Great, what smells so good? Chicken and wine sauce, just the way you like it. The way you make it? Uh-huh, I did make it and I made an apple pie too from scratch. So I thought that was an interesting food scene because, you know, she's trying so hard to, she's trying to alleviate his concerns and his fears about what's what's happening, you know, in their in their life in New York. And so she's trying to alleviate his fears by hearkening back to when they lived together in Florida. And she, you know, she was more of a quote unquote traditional wife who would cook all the time. I thought that was a really interesting foodie reference because it takes the food and it uses it in, within a domestic environment, but it's also used as a tool to demonstrate how different she really is. And she's the one that is starting to change and evolve much more than he is as a result of their life, which is a really interesting inverse from what happens in the movie. Now that now that you mention it, there is a very um, interesting scene at the beginning where they're in church, where it, this is just in the movie, mm -hmm. where they're in the church and they kind of, they are praying and she's a bit more adventurous she's kind of a different type of person not you don't get the idea that she's so family oriented because her kevin's mother you can tell dislikes her because she's kind of like when are you going to give me some grandchildren mm -hmm. um but marianne when she's in the court and she's supporting kevin she must know as well that there's some sort of um, not necessarily everything is kind of above above board. It is above board, but but she doesn't seem to care. She wants to celebrate the case where 
a child that has been possibly molested was crying in court in any case mm-hmm. you, know, you wouldn't want to celebrate that but she's that type of person that is like let's do shots and let's do so that's kind of a contrast mm-hmm. then to and now that you mention that there's not that in the book then it makes sense how mm-hmm. there's there's a little bit of a discrepancy there so they yeah. portray her as someone who is not really necessarily um bothered with making a family creating a family but at the Mm -hmm. same time then there's a sharp change when they move so what's another interesting change in the from the book to the movie is that is is basically how it ends so the big reveal happens kind of toward the end kevin knows that john melton is not really who he seems um what happens is he starts to he kevin is the one that sort of starts to have these weird like visions not not marianne in the movie kevin is the one that starts to have these strange visions he starts thinking to himself john milton is evil and so he goes and he consults a catholic priest and the priest gives him these 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 tools and these techniques to to see what happens he says take this bible and say the name of jesus christ in his in his presence and he'll have this certain reaction and if that happens you'll know he's you'll know he's he's satan yeah and so kevin does that John Milton reacts the way that the priest tells him and Kevin kills him. So that's how the book, the, he stabs him. Yep. And so everybody, you know, everybody thinks Kevin has gone mad instead of Marianne, oh. like in the, in the movie. So the book, it's a very interesting change from the movie. I wonder why they take, that's a big change. And I think the whole thing about Marianne trying to get pregnant was maybe because we we see that John Milton is actually wanting Kevin to, um, get together with Christabella in order mm-hmm. to have the Antichrist, but mm-hmm. that's something I didn't quite get because Kevin is being being his son is the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Well, he has many children. The devil has many children. So yeah, all of the uh, in the in the book, all of the other attorneys, these young men that Kevin's age, they're all the sons of of Satan. They're all. So the oh, idea is that he's okay. trying to build a, a, a law firm and an empire built on the children of Satan. So all of these quote unquote antichrists. And so that's yeah. what happens when Kevin, you know, kind of loses it and starts questioning everything. Everyone turns on him. So the book ends with Kevin going to prison. And so he's in prison and his wife comes to visit him and she's like, I can't do this anymore. You've lost your mind. Everybody, you know, the, the every it's you. And what's interesting is that you're not sure if it's in, in Kevin's mind or if it's really happening. And if the devil uh, had an effect on everything that's going on, because, you know, the priest is demonstrated in one case of telling Kevin, well, if you do this, you'll prove the devil that he's the devil. But then when they go to court, the priest is like, I just told him, you know, evil exists in these different forms and blah, blah, blah. I didn't tell him to kill him. So you're not really sure what's going on until the very, very end. And I thought it was an interesting kind of a parallel with how the movie ends because the movie ends, remember, um, with Kevin after, and we'll talk about this here in a bit, but basically the movie ends with like a time loop with Kevin Mm looking at himself in a mirror and and thinking he's everything he's experienced has been just this vision and he has a chance to do things over again yes so you see it going into a time loop kind of in in a strange way so the book ends with kevin being in prison and he's told oh this this head honcho of the prisoners wants you to come and like do some work for him and um he goes he goes to meet the, the the head honcho of the prisoners and guess who it is it's john milton 
the devil. So so, yeah, it's a cool, it's a cool little interesting um, way to end the book, I thought, but I thought that was an interesting parallel because, you know, in both times, you know, there is sort of this sense of they're going to be going through this loop over and over and over again with maybe this is his chance to redeem himself. So yeah, I thought that was an interesting end to the book. Um, I honestly have to say, I found the movie much more compelling. The book was not bad, but it, it kind of gets bogged down in a lot of the legal stuff toward the middle. And maybe that's just me yeah. not interested in it. What did you find more exciting about the film, do you think? Well, I like the fact that they really get a lot more into the whole question of, you know, what is what what is evil and what is good they talk about it to a certain extent in the book but the book really is is really written in my opinion more like kind of like a thriller mm-hmm. and i like that they do get into a certain level of philosophy and and what is right what is wrong you know and and you know are we sort of the architects of our own of our own fate and our own destruction kind of like how kevin is you know he's given he goes through all of these things he goes to new york with his wife they start living this life he becomes you know and kevin if you think about it even in the beginning he's he's kind of morally questionable as well yeah. and that's a kind of a difference not a difference from the character in the book because he's morally questionable in the book as well it's just different He's he's almost like emotionally weaker in the book because he's the one that is not able to fully embrace this, whatever you want to call it, this, oh, the devil's my father kind of thing. But his character in the movie, I thought was an interesting, it was an interesting study in, in I don't know, what, how would I say this? It's interesting to see the way that he he changed, but in a way he didn't change at all. He just became more fully who he was because he, he's sort of a jerk in the movie too, you know? And then he- Well, that's what I was gonna say, because in the in the, in the the film at the beginning, when he's looking at himself in the mirror and he's about to, he's just had that interaction with his client that did that weird thing with his fingers on the bench mm-hmm. as he was listening to the girl talk. And that's where something clicks in Kevin. He gets really angry and it's like, he's really realized the full extent of just how evil this teacher is. So he looks yes. at himself in the mirror, in the toilet, mm-hmm. but there's a little one fraction of a second where his face changes and it looks evil and he's looking at kind of an evil version of himself. Mm -hmm. And that's when he decides to carry on defending him, even though he knows what the, what the truth is. Um, So there is kind of that moral thread and evil versus good right from the beginning. And you get this sense throughout the film where he's living in a kind of deja vu. So like he's relived this, Perhaps many times he's like a bit in a daze. He can hear mm-hmm. things. His, his, there's that that kind of feeling of him walking through something that he's familiar with. Yep. Even with Christabella, he can hear that she's talking on the phone, and she he's kind of attracted to her. He really he likes John Milton. Mm-hmm. Um, everything seems familiar, and I think that's because he's just going back into his fold, into his pen. Mm-hmm. What's interesting? So there, I thought there are some really great food scenes in this movie and the way that food is presented is this really fascinating tool kind of for revealing certain aspects of these characters. Um, the one that stood out to me the most is the, so when Kevin is defending Philip Moyes in New York City, so Philip mm. Moyes is accused of killing um, killing a goat and they and they show it and so i thought it was a very masterful use of food because what kevin does is he compares this man's killing of a goat to jewish 
dietary laws and basically says that this this man is is basically he's he's protected under the constitution to pr practice his own religion so he is killing a goat and you the, yeah. the, the unin the unspoken um the unspoken part of that is that like he's killing a goat as, a, as like a voodoo sacrifice they don't actually come out and say it but you get a sense of 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 it being related to like a voodoo sacrifice. Of course, the, the the perception is that it's bad and he's evil. But I thought it was an interesting comparison because then Kevin in court gets a piece of veal and presents it to the court and says, you know, this is a piece of veal and it was, you know, killed, you know, it's it's part of it's part of somebody's diet. And and just like, you know, just like Jewish dietary laws, well, the judge happens to be Jewish. So he knows so all like about a ritual. The Jewish. Yeah. yeah. So food related and, and ritual related killing of, of animals for food. So I thought that was a very masterful use of food in this film. Uh, the poor goat, <laughs> poor goat. Yeah, poor we seem goat. to see a lot of goats lately, we've don't seen, we? We've seen a few chickens and goats being sacrificed. I know, um, time, I know. haven't we? Yeah, for, on this podcast for, at least. Farm animals have a rough time on our podcast, don't they? They really do. <laughs> but men, yeah, his point of like men kill animals and eat their flesh, so anything that enters into the ritual of it makes sense mm -hmm. so there's no difference just because we don't understand it or it's not part of what how we um, act it doesn't mean that it's um it can't be acceptable and so that's how he wins he'll always win and you get mm -hmm. and you get that feeling well he's always winning because he always was the son of the devil so he was always programmed to have that extra drive to win mm -hmm. um and in the meantime at least in the in the film his wife who loves him for who he is and they seem to have a good relationship mm -hmm. and I'm just gonna there's just a weird scene right at the beginning where he's affectionate with her and he kind of he, he with his mouth he takes the earring from her ear do you there's a very short kind of moment where he does that and then he gives it back to her and then she's got it straight back in the ears like a little bloop it's they didn't mm. really the, the the it's not very seamless but it was just but I thought, well, it's an interaction and it shows that they're really close. They love each other and they're yeah. quite physical as well. Um, well, he, so... seems to, he seems to like biting her a lot. Remember that opening scene when yeah. he wins in court and they're dancing and they're drinking shots yeah. at the bar and she, he, he bites her. He bites her ass. Yeah. It's, the, it's the beginning when he wins in court and they're there in the bar. It's when he's oh, that's so interesting. by the lawyer and he, like, he bites her ass. And I thought, well, that's an interesting, you know, food ingestion yeah. you know he, he he obviously sees her as some sort of nourishment for himself whether it's physical or yes. probably emotional and in his soul so yeah you do get a strong sense of of love between them and they're very you know you can tell they're very she's probably much more dependent on him i think than he is her yeah you see how how she breaks down in the film you know as time goes on you know she's she's so easily seduced by 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 um, Milton, you know, he he tells her she should change her hair. He tells her to start spending time with these other wives of these lawyers. You know, he gives them this apartment. They have all this money. Um, she spends her days drinking and shopping with these women, yeah. and uh, and you see that breakdown of of who she is, and it's it's an, it's interesting and it's very sad. But you also yeah. see it in a lot of the food scenes with her because in the beginning when he they first go to New York and she's waiting for him in their hotel room before um before they've gotten that fancy apartment and she's waiting up late for him and she's ordered room service and you see this scene of like you know all these cans of coca-cola and burgers and fries and like like just like i don't i guess you would call it junk food but it's like it's food that you 
figure she's probably used to eating all the time, like comfort food. Like that's her comfort waiting for him. And then you yeah. see it again when he's working late and they have that apartment and she's painting and she's all by herself. And that's part of her, her emotional breakdown is he leaves her alone all the time. So she's eating Popeye's, which I thought was great. And then he's in his office working on his legal briefs and he's eating a burger and fries and drinking soda. So I thought it was an interesting mirror of, of the two of them. Yeah. You know, they, they want, they want to be with one another. They can't be with one another. So they comfort themselves by eating this food that they're used to eating, you know, comfort food. Yes. But also, uh, it also represents, I think a link to who they, who they were before they came to New York. Yeah. So there's a big change because I guess she wants to have a family with him, but the nature of his job doesn't allow for that. So in the meantime, she's left her own job and her neighbors are trying to be nice, but then you realize they're not really very nice because she chooses a color for her apartment and it's green. And so the neighbors come in and say, well, green doesn't really go with your complexion or with your hair or something like that. So they're quite aggressive with her uh, in terms of like her own personal appearance, just like just like John Milton is. Mm -hmm. And that's how she feels most attacked. And yeah, she does eat Popeye's while, while she's decorating the flat mm -hmm. and she doesn't like the color, but because she's following their advice, she gets very frustrated. And, and she has actually a piece of fried chicken in her mouth while she's ripping down all the wallpaper or the paint or something from the, the actual wall of the flat. It reminded me a lot of Rosemary's baby, mm -hmm. uh, her, the entrapment side of things. So, and being yeah. kind of caught in that world, in a world that she doesn't belong to, but she's trying really hard to be part of. Yeah. And it also ties in with what we talked about in our in our previous episode when it comes to women is, you know, women are often um, attacked in 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 ways that address their appearance. And so that's how she is being broken down is by being told basically that her, her appearance as, as it is when they come to New York is not good enough. You know, she's told that she has to change her hair and, um, you know, she's told, oh, well, that color that you're painting the house doesn't go with your complexion blah, 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 you know, it's ridiculous. And even when she has a an emotional breakdown and she and Kevin have a big fight and he's the one that brings up her hair. He's, you know, he says, I, I he, she says, I know you hate it. And he says, no, I don't hate it. He says, but I think it is a big change. And I think you're, you're, you're possibly traumatized by it. And so even, you know, even he is, is dismissive of her in a, you know, in a physical, in her physical attributes kind of way. So it's, it is a very interesting and sad Sad. And so in the book there, um, Marianne has, or Miriam has no hallucinations whatsoever. She doesn't see things no. at all because no. in, in the film, that's the big thing. Yeah. She kind of is portrayed as be of, of lo losing her mind. Mm -hmm. And then there's oh. a really great moment when Kevin's mom comes to visit them and she's mm -hmm. was part of the Baptist Endeavor Youth Crusade in 1966. We find out that she was eating at a restaurant um, and every time she'd eat at that restaurant for her time in New York, she would talk to this waiter who kept mm -hmm. coming up to her. So the restaurant as a place where, you know, she's approached and she was young and we find out then, you know, the big twist. Well, at least for me, because though I've watched this film a few times, I will always forget the twists. But um, she was approached by John Milton. And so that's how they got together. And um, then he had she had Kevin. Um, and so for me, every time I watch this film, that's like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> I forget. I completely forget. <laughs> the movie follows the general outlines of the book in the sense that a lawyer is picked for his legal prowess to go work for this prestigious firm in New York. 
kind of loses, you know, loses his soul. So it is very Faustian. It's, it's very much a morality tale in that sense. He's married, but the specific details are different in the book and the movie. Um, like Kevin is really the one who's, is having these hallucinations or you think he is because his wife, you know, what we, she keeps talking about how she and Kevin have this like wild, amazing, passionate sex and Kevin it keeps having these nightmares about waking up and seeing this man making love to his wife in these really passionate, you know, very kind of pornographic ways, but the man in the dream always looks like him. And then is this in the up, book? This is in the book. Oh, that's and the then, reverse in the film. Yep, oh, okay. exactly. And then the, so in the book, the wife wakes up and she's always like, oh God, you were so wonderful in bed last night, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and she has like marks on her body, like kind of the way Charlize Theron has the marks on her body in the church. Yes. But no, and, and, and in the movie, in the book rather, the wife Miriam says, no, it was you, Kevin. Like you were the one who did this to me. Like it was you. And, and so it's, you know, and he's in his mind, like, I don't remember doing this. Like I remember coming home and going to sleep. And then I had these dreams and I wake up and she, she knows he's seeing his wife having these orgasms so you know with this with this other man who looks like him so a lot of parallels to rosemary's baby in the sense of you know demon lover with the devil demon yes. exactly exactly so yeah okay so that's um yeah okay so that's really interesting because mm -hmm. and that i guess the book keeps you guessing a little bit more because you don't know if it's something that kevin is making up or that she's if making she's up, making it up to do with an influence to do with John Milton. Yes. So that keeps you, whereas it's quite clear in the movie that John Milton is to blame. I think like halfway through, we know that he's a devil. Like there's no doubt about it. Even before you know he's maybe. the devil from yeah. like, what's the scene where he's talking about the, excuse my language. We're going to, we're going to get explicit here, boys and girls, when he's talking about the girl he fucked. And he's like, you wouldn't look, you wouldn't guess it to look at me, but I'm a master of the universe. And you're like, ha ha. Look at me. Underestimated from day one. You'd never think I was a master of the universe now, would you? That's your only weakness as far as I can see. What's that? It's the look. That Florida stud thing. What is that? Excuse me, ma'am. Did I leave my boots under your bed? <laughs> never worked a jury, didn't have a woman. Yeah, but you know what you're missing? You're missing what I have. There's this beautiful girl just fucked me 40 ways from Sunday. We're done. She's walking to the bathroom. She's trying to walk. She turns. <laughs> she looks. It's me. Not the Trojan army just fucked her. Little old me. She has this look on her face like, how the hell did that happen? You're literally a master of the universe. We get it. That's Al Pacino though, isn't mm -hmm. it? I feel like yeah. that's just his character. Like he's a bit like that mm -hmm. all the way through from the Godfather kind of he's yeah. carried that forward, hasn't he? <laughs> but and, and I thought that was an interesting scene in the movie when he tells Kevin that because they're walking through this um Asian fish market. And I thought that was interesting that they chose to use fish as the backdrop because you know, fish is very tied to the early Christian symbols. Um, you saw you saw the the fish used as a symbol of early Christianity and Jesus Christ. So I thought that was an interesting little uh, little connection to food in that sense. I mean, it, it could have been in in, a, in any kind of a market. It could have been a duck market. It could have been a you yeah. know a meat market. But they chose to so use it's, fish. It, do you think it makes it a bit more blasphemous? Then there's a yes. bit more. Yeah, like that was mocking. the intent. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't know about the book, but there's a very 
quite quite a long scene at the end where they go into what free will is and mm -hmm. there's that whole discourse on when Kevin says well what about love because it's about evil and good but he says what about love and Milton says it's overrated biochemically no different than eating large quantities of chocolate yeah and you've, you've mentioned about um the sex kind of sexual side of things mm -hmm. and I think that's a big part of 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 you know Satan and the fact that he is producer and chocolate has Afro, um, aphrodisiac qualities as well yep. so exactly um, so maybe that's why chocolate is mentioned in that sense I don't know if it was done purposefully but it certainly gave the idea of saying you know you eat chocolate and you think oh this is something sweet and innocent but actually mm -hmm. it's um, manipulative in a way yeah. because it's changing things chemically so it's saying everyone there is no is there free will at the end i have been watching couldn't help myself watching waiting holding my breath but i'm no puppeteer kevin i don't make things happen doesn't work like that what did you do to marianne free will it's like butterfly wings. Once touched, they never get off the ground. No, I only set the stage. You pull your own strings. And that's the great, and that's the great question, isn't there? Like, what what constitutes free will anyway? I mean, it 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 gets into some really interesting philosophical questions, as well. Um, you know, are are we are we really? Do we have? Well, how much free will do we really have? And um. You know, because even in the book, and, I, and not even in the book, they kind of they kind of talk about this question of free will, and and you know, we we all have the ability to make our own decisions, but then mm -hmm. do we really? You know, and then in, in the case, film, it well. seems to kind of want to put forward that we do because Kevin shoots himself. Mm -hmm. So I take that as meaning he's expressed his free will to not be part of this. Yeah, but then he, but then it ends with him, you know being given the same opportunity a second time around and you, you you're not sure is he going to win this time or is he going to lose because he doesn't he doesn't seem to remember that the reporter you know the the reporter in the movie in the beginning who kind of is needling him about you know you might have lost you might have finally lost a case there kevin the the reporter is revealed to be the devil in disguise so i thought mm -hmm. that was interesting that he, he he in his mind he's think he's thinking this was a vision or a dream or some sort, but he doesn't remember that the reporter is the one who is really, you know, the one who kind of set him on the path that she's really the devil. So you're like, hmm, I wonder, is, is this, is this like, and, it, and then I thought when I, it makes you wonder also, like, is this just like an ongoing, you know, never ending loop of, of Kevin and his father trying to one up one another? It's interesting to think about. And then it can, it, you know, if you think about it like that, you can, you know, you can kind of link it to the overall you know, pattern that you see in humanity is, is every single day, we all make individual choices to do the right thing or do the wrong thing. And so who knows? And then, 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 you know, what's, then what's right and what's wrong. It, it, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's very much a, it is a morality tale in that sense, but it also begs the question of what, you know, what represents true evil and true good. And, and, who makes those determinations, you know. If, or, if or maybe that regardless of anyone's choice, you go back to the start where yeah. there is good and evil anyway, and it goes back to the beginning where sure. you're then forced to make that choice mm -hmm. again and again. Yeah. But 
but and then Kevin, just the symbolism of, of a lot of the food and even a lot of the drink in the movie, I thought was really interesting because um, in the party scene, the first time that they go to John Milton's very luxurious, fabulous apartment and he's having this party, I thought that the symbolism of the drinks was interesting because you notice Christabella drinking red wine and you notice um, Mary, Marianne drinking red wine, which I thought that was very interesting, like little comment on uh, Christianity, the, the, the body and the blood, they're the only ones who are drinking red wine. Red wine is, is very much a strong symbol in the Catholic religion. It's used in the Catholic mass. And I thought it was interesting that, that they are the only ones drinking this red wine. It looks very much like blood in those. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting that they being the two women, the two um, women who are going to bear children, so to speak. I thought that was an interesting bit of symbolism and commentary on their role within within the movie and their, their relationship to Kevin. Christabella is later revealed to be the child of Satan as well. Um, and at the end, it's interesting because John Milton is basically made it clear that he wants Christabella and Kevin to to mate basically and to have a have a child who's going to be the Antichrist, which, you know, is also just gross. <laughs> but I thought that was really interesting. And, and you and you made a good point earlier when you said that, I mean, the child of the devil is automatically going to be the Antichrist, right? So it's two it's two Antichrists having a a mini I guess he was was he trying to like breed the absolute perfect anti antichrist and Kevin was or maybe a little just, bit maybe, maybe torn further, maybe just maybe just keep peopling the the world with children of of the devil and to maybe increase... that's why they portrayed Alice Lomax as being so religious because mm -hmm. in a way Kevin had that tendency to be evil but he was tempered by this good side and I mm -hmm. think the devil probably thought well we've got to get the perfect combination is if he and Christabella have Mm -hmm. have a child perhaps mm -hmm. um, yeah and in the book i noticed that there are talking of cocktails there were there are champagne cocktails and oh yes um, there are white wines and they go to the russian tea room again which reminded me of rosemary's, oh, rosemary's baby, baby yeah yes so that a, must have been a thing yeah i think so you know the devil the russian tea room you know maybe the devil secretly owns the russian tea room ellie <laughs> You never Who know. knows? <laughs> I'm, I'm, go I'm going there in the fall when I go to New York, so I'll, I'll report back. If there's a waiter that approaches mm -hmm. me and tries to whispers in, whisper in my ear, I'll yes. let you know. Okay, yeah, I would just if I were you, I you can go there too. <laughs> run, run like hell in the other direction. Like hell being the operative. Word. Exactly, exactly. So. <laughs> Another interesting. You were talking about um, Marianne becoming friends with the wives, and um, you know she starts having hallucinations when she's with them. Mm. So in the movie, or excuse me, in the book, um, so she, Miriam does start spending time with the the other wives of the of the law firm. They all do live in the same building, and there's an interesting scene where they're trying to get her to come shopping with them. And I just thought it was an interesting, an interesting symbolism and use of food. So these, um, Kevin just has just met these two wives. He says, Kevin thought they were the two most bubbly women he had ever met. Norma's light blue eyes sparkled like jewels under ice and Jean's green eyes twinkled with a similar glitter. Both had soft, smooth complexions in bright, healthy cheeks and rich red lips. Dressed in jeans and similar dark blue sweatshirts with pink LA gear sneakers, it was as if they were wearing some sort of uniform. You'll come to my apartment for coffee. I've got these great sugarless muffins, Jean said, scooping her arm, her arm under Miriam's. There's this bakery just over on Broadway and 63rd. She acts like she just discovered it. I found it first, Norma said playfully. 
I just thought that was interesting because, you know, yeah. they make a make a point of saying they're sugarless muffins. She could have just said, come have coffee and muffins. So I thought it was an interesting commentary on on these women. And, and you see it reflected in their characters in the movie about they're they're very obsessed with how they look and yeah. what they put into their bodies. And again, in the movie, there's that scene where Marianne has the hallucination where she sees the demon inside the body of one of the yes. wives. And was that, that was creepy? creepy? Oh, I know, right? Yeah. So yeah, I did, that just kind of stood out to me because, you know, what's the first thing you think of when you think of a muffin? You're like, oh, a muffin, yummy. You don't think, oh, I have to have a, go have a sugar-free muffin. So again, I thought that was a really interesting yeah. little, uh, little food sim symbolism and then there's we don't see that yeah, yeah we don't then, see that at all in the film i think yeah. with them then they're, they're i don't think they're eating at all no. yeah i there's a there was something else that i wanted to add in regarding the scene with the veal roast in the movie um the, the way that it's used to contrast with the sacrifice goat i thought that was an interesting um symbolism of both cultural differences and also how food itself can be turned into a religious symbol I mean, you see the goat being sacrificed and eaten as part of a religion. It's similar to how veal and cows and pigs are sacrificed on the altar of American consumerism. So I thought it was an interesting uh, use of food, but also kind of an interesting and subtle commentary on economics and societal standing and even white privilege. You have the example of the black man being punished for killing an animal, which is part of his own religion. And then the concept of eating the body and drinking the blood, which you know is called transubstantiation, and that's only brought up in court by, you know, by his attorney. It's not considered at all by the people who are trying to punish this man. So I thought that was, a, a, like I said, really interesting uh, commentary on race and culture and society. And, you know, how, you know, we as Americans, we don't think twice about killing and eating animals, you know, as part of our, as part of our culture. But if somebody does it as a part of a perceived bad religion, like voodoo, it's automatically vilified, which I saw. So I thought that was an interesting take on it. Just something that yeah, had occurred very, to me when I was very, when I was watching the movie. Very, and also when he gets, I think it's when he gets offered the job, and they're in this inn, and it's called Bramble Inn. Inn. Do they not eat lamb? And that's where I thought, oh, he'll be, he'll be the sacrificial lamb. Next thing he knows, because he's actually yes. being offered, and he's he's talking to is it Paul Schofield or Schofield yes. who offers him the job, and he. Um, yes, he was like, there's that moment he where he says something like, I feel he felt like there was a fire inside him and he had to win the case against Lois. You nearly get that feeling that, and we talk about free will mm -hmm. at the end, and that's kind of made clear in the film that it's it's a very big part of it, but that it's nearly like Kevin couldn't decide. He had this fire inside him mm -hmm. and you get that scene in the mirror as well, where with the, with the face changing, it's like he couldn't control it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the lamb scene comes in, in the book. And, um, and I thought that was a good symbol. Oh, yes. as well I have fate. it here. It says the Bramble Inn was one of the better restaurants just outside of Blythedale. It was an English chop house famous for its rack of lamb and homemade trifle. Kevin and Miriam Taylor loved the ambiance from the cobblestone walkway to the large foyer with the hickory benches and brick fireplace. So what I what's interesting about that scene though is it's a really interesting contrast to how their characters are portrayed in the movie because obviously this is like a higher end restaurant you know it's very elegant it's you know it's it, it's got higher end food and, and drink and things like that and in the in the movie you don't see Kevin and and um, Marianne eating high end food at all you see them mostly eating a lot of fast food yes. you know the the scene in the beginning and and when she's waiting for him and uh. 
you know, eating her burgers and her fries and her Popeyes. And, and again, it's like, it's obviously meant to be comfort food, but I mean, I don't think anybody would ever say like burgers and fries and Popeyes is like high end food, you know, and I don't, no offense to anyone out there who loves Popeyes and burgers and fries. I love Popeyes myself, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's definitely not hot cuisine. So hot cuisine. I thought that was just because, um, yes, they're separate. They're kind of apart. So there's like, what's the point of cooking? They're both leading busy lives. But I didn't see, like in the film, you see that they start off from Gainesville. Um, this small, is it a, quite a small town? Gainesville, and, Florida? Not yeah. really. Is it a big town? Like, I don't have an idea of like how. I would like, say it's probably feeling. comparable. It's, it's, I would say it's a mid-sized city. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty mm -hmm. well known in Florida. It's not, it's not some, it's portrayed as being like this little tiny, very. Mm -hmm. That's uh, the feeling that really it gave. it's really not. Yeah. I mean. Okay. Because I got the feeling like it was it was just a very it was quite a small religious community and there were no food scenes there. But you get the idea that they moved to New York and it's like a big city and they don't know what to do with themselves. Yeah. You know, they well, wouldn't I mean, know not, where to go. It's definitely not like New York City at all. Um, it's also very um, like like it, it, it's like the I guess the difference would be like if you were in a probably like Albuquerque, I would say Gainesville is probably a lot like Albuquerque where I live. It's a big city but it's not enormous and it has some good fine dining options, but it's, we certainly don't have this huge uh, cosmopolitan restaurant scene and there are some rich people, but it's not characterized by wealth. So I would definitely say that Gainesville is probably comparable more to Albuquerque than it is anything else, but it's not, it's not a small, small city, mm -hmm. but it is in the yeah. South. And I, I thought that was interesting that they chose to, you know, make the make the point of it being in the south because you know there's a perception of most places in the south of america south of the united states as being very christian and, and very religious yeah. and, and they tend to be i, I mean you know I'm, I'm not an expert on these things but that that is definitely the perception of the american south is that there are you know a lot of people are extremely religious and yeah. there, and there are a lot of churches like what what's portrayed in the movie well, it seemed like they couldn't wait to leave Gainesville, so they seemed quite happy to go. Yeah. <laughs> for this recipe, though, for this for this um, film, The Devil's Advocate, I might do something chocolatey, something... How about um, a cho chocolate devil's food cake? I could do that, or maybe a hot chocolate, because obviously the flames of hell have engulfed <laughs> the chocolate. Well, you could do a molten chocolate cake where you put in some nice, like, um, like hot, I'm trying to think. There's a dessert that I made one time, and I, I think it was uh, a British, it's uh, Nigella Lawson, who, you know, I adore and want to be when I grow up. And she called it Choco Hotto Pots, which I guess her kid had come up with. I don't know. And it basically, it's like a it's like a flour chocolate egg mixture and you bake it. And so the top of it kind of puffs up like a little cake, but the inside is still molten. Oh, like a souffle, which isn't, I guess. Yeah. Cooked. There yeah. you go. That's a good idea. That. And I, I don't know. I keep, we keep running into goats in the, in, in our, in <laughs> our have to do I, I'm, tr I'm trying to decide if maybe like the good Lord is, is trying to tell me, uh, I need to maybe do something with a goat. So, but go for it. Right. I mean, speaking of, and then, you know, speaking of just all the different other references to eating and, and ingestion, I thought it was interesting in the, the character in the movie of Eddie, Eddie Barzoon. And mm, he makes, the, yeah. he makes this comment at the party. He says, top of the food chain and dinner is served. 
I thought yes. that was a really interesting just statement economically wise, but I also thought it was some interesting foreshadowing because little does Eddie know he's going to end up being the sacrificial lamb. Yes. yes. And when he when he walks into the room, he says that, doesn't he? And he, yep. the doors open and you see all the... And that's because um, there are all these clients there, potential clients, which haven't run into any difficulty yet, but they could and they will use their law firm. So they are all kind of potential mm -hmm. um, future um yes kind of people yeah. people that they can feed off yeah and then you know just another little uh foodie reference i one of the the scene in the movie where the kevin and john milton are watching the flamenco show the actual name of the flamenco guitarist is tomatito oh so far tomato. so far our non-spanish speaking uh listeners out there tomatito means little tomato which i thought was just another interesting little food reference so uh, red and juicy uh, right yes exactly hey i know I yeah think i'm I mean, gonna do hot chocolate i'm gonna do like a tomato recipe there you go there you go tomatito tomatito yeah yeah tomatito i don't know i'm trying to decide maybe i'll make a drink because i thought you know there's a lot of interesting food references in the movie as well but i was that the use of liquor was fascinating i mean yeah. obviously it's drank as part of celebrating you know like like you see in the beginning they're doing shots of tequila and then you see the parties that they go to and um but it's also kind of used in a, as a subtle device for separating the men from the women at these parties you see only the men drink the hard stuff the women mostly drink champagne and the only scene where you, this is an exception is when kevin comes home after the party and when he's been consulted about this new client who murdered his family and marianne had been left alone at the party without him and she's you know very insecure so she's drinking hard bourbon straight from the bottle I thought that was just an interesting use of of alcohol, kind of, she's kind of taking on her own identity in that moment, telling him that she's not going to be pushed aside. And then she sends him to sleep on the couch, which I thought was, you know, a really funny marital moment, because I don't know a single person who's um, married that one of them hasn't slept on the couch at some point, <laughs> usually the husband. <laughs> And then I wanted to ask you about this because you uh, you speak Italian. So the character of Cristabella, Cristabella, mm. doesn't that mean beautiful Christ? yeah uh, christabel does that name exist in english christabel as well uh -huh. it probably it de derives yeah. it's obviously a really christian it's a christian reference okay i just wondered yeah. is in listening to it because you know when you start to really analyze movies you know you start to really look at all these details you maybe didn't notice the first time around and i started thinking her name was interesting because you know christa christ or christos and then bella beautiful mm -hmm. beautiful christ mm -hmm. so i just thought that was more interesting symbolism in a movie about the devil yeah very interesting also mm -hmm. that she is speaking italian all the time is that the same in the book um where she speaks remember. that's kind of the first scene where kevin is really really taken taken by her and it's because she, she doesn't she really um, her character doesn't really exist in the book oh, okay Mm -hmm. oh interesting yeah 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 it's a lot it's yeah it means beautiful christian Okay. okay. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's a word. I don't know anyone called like that nowadays. It might be quite an um, mm -hmm. an old Christian name. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's that popular. Christabel is more popular perhaps in English than in. Um... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've read I've read some books um, set in in Great Britain where they have a character named Christabel, but they're set in the 1800s and. Yeah, it, I feel not, like it's, it's quite... not a modern, not a no. modern name. I don't think so, but no. yeah. Maybe it isn't well, Italian. Who knows? Cristabella. 
Mr. Bella. It's, I feel like it's definitely kind of um, a witchy name, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there must be some story. I think, isn't there a poem called Christabel? Yes, but oh, yeah. God, of course, who's it by? By Col- Coleridge. Samuel and Taylor to, Coleridge. Yeah, but in, to be honest, I don't know. I don't remember the contents of that. No, but, me neither. Yeah, but it's not I, a very common name. But yeah, interesting that mm-hmm. it's called, you know, Lover of Christians. He really mocks, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. The devil sure. mocks. Yeah, very. Oh, gosh, totally. Yeah. And then uh, just another thing that I noticed, you know, specific to ingestion is there's a, such a significant use of breast imagery in the movie. Mm, a lot of breasts. And yeah, so yeah. a lot of imagery of like breastfeeding and you know connections to the virgin mary and and i thought that was really interesting as well you know motherhood is a is a is a pretty significant theme in the movie you know kevin's mother is this devout christian marianne is trying so hard to become a mother uh yeah it's i thought that was really really an interesting just symbolism and that's why i thought it was such a big part of and it would have been a big part of the book too which is surprising because Mm -hmm. because they're trying to start a family it's understandable that the devil wants to stop that plan and so he he does it so that Marianne thinks she's losing her mind and in 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 the end does take her own life so mm-hmm. he manages with that so I, I that's kind of the the part yeah. which so it makes sense now that the book kind of cuts out that whole well mm-hmm. in the book there isn't that part at all yeah and that it's Kevin that's losing his mind right mm. okay and yeah. what was your general kind of feeling at the end of the book did you feel like oh I enjoyed that or because with the with the with the with the film, it's quite fun at the end. Even though it goes a bit, I don't know, a bit over the top. I would say it's fun. Like I, I yeah. feel it was a nice film to watch, and it's a classic. But I don't know if the book would have left that same the way it ends. It would have left the same. It was feeling. a little bit depressing at the end of the book, to be honest, mm. because you know you do feel you do feel for Kevin's character. You know you, you empathize with him, even though he does some questionably moral question questionably moral things but then again mm-hmm. who who among us hasn't but you know it, it's it's it kind of reminded me of the end of rosemary's baby there's all this build up and you, and and you kind of think oh you know he's going to be able to finally free himself like you think rosemary is she going to be able to free herself and then no the guys catch her and take her to the hospital and she ends up having the baby so at the end you know kevin goes and kills john milton's character but he's the one who ends up being on trial for murder he goes to jail and then at the end he goes into the prison library and there's and it's funny because in the book they the pr- other prisoners they come up to him and they you kind of you kind of worry that it's going to be like a gang rape scene that you're like oh god um and they're like no hey that you know the head of the prison library wants to see you old scratch that's what they call him old scratch so i thought that was you know pretty telling nickname because old scratch is one of the devil's many nicknames in literature throughout history and so, so that's how he meets him again and the same way that and in the film he meets a journalist. Okay, yep. so, so there is a little bit of uh, there is a kind of a little bit of, of similarity in the ending. Yeah, so I'll, I'll read you the the last uh, section of it. Kevin knew what awaited him as he moved down the corridor toward the library. Perhaps he had always known the evil that lurked in his heart had kept the knowledge cloaked, but it was always there. Time to pull away the cloak and face the truth. He thought. He turned into the doorway. The library was impressive for a prison library, and it was quiet as a library should be. A door opened across the well-lit room, and the keeper of the books came came toward him slowly. Scratch. He was smiling. He knew Kevin was coming. Of course he knew. As he drew closer and closer, his face became more and more familiar until he was standing right before him. And once again, Kevin looked into the charismatic fatherly eyes 
of John Milton. And just on a physical level, I think in the book, there's mm -hmm. a big emphasis placed on his height. So he's quite tall. But of course, in the film, it's Al Pacino and he's quite short and he's got these mm -hmm. big shoes underneath. You see that, yeah, in that one scene, yeah. <laughs> but, the, but there's also kind of a similar kind of tie-in as well. Um, do you remember our episode on Angel Heart when at the mm -hmm. very end, Mickey Rourke's character sees the woman in black and the woman in black, is her face is revealed and it's the face of Robert De Niro, yes, face of the exactly. devil. And then, you you know, there was this, there's all that debate about who who that face really belongs to. I thought it was interesting because there's the scene in 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 this movie, The Devil's Advocate. I thought it was interesting that at the end of the movie, The Devil's Advocate, you see uh, the, the face transforms, the face of Satan, the face of John Milton transforms into the face of Keanu Reeves' character. Mm -hmm. that it was, I thought that was interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah very similar vibes to Angel mm -hmm. Heart and, um, and Rosemary's Baby, I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, definitely. Both films that we've covered in our Fear Feast podcast, Vanessa. Yes, I know, I know. I think I don't have anything else to say about this film other than Kevin is a more attractive name to me now. And <laughs> aren't, you aren't you glad we talked about Kevin, Ellie? I'm very glad we talked about <laughs> Kevin. I haven't decided what I'm going to make for my, for, my, for my dish yet. There's a lot of different things. Yeah. Maybe I'll make sugar-free muffins. No, thank you. Ooh, chicken and, chicken and wine sauce and an apple pie. Apple pie is nice as well. Um, yeah, I might make like a hot chocolate, chocolatey thing and just call it the manipulative chocolate. <laughs> and I'll make the chicken and wine sauce and I'll call it domestic bliss chicken and wine. For this week, I'm going to make a recipe called the devil's hot chocolate with marshmallows from hell. To go with Allie's hot chocolate with marshmallows from hell, I decided to combine food references from both the book and the movie. So my recipe post is going to be chicken in wine sauce with tomatitos or little tomatoes. Both recipes will be posted to our social media. The recipes for both will be posted on Facebook. So keep an eye out for those. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and make sure to tune in for our next episode coming to you in two weeks. As always, stay spooky. What's that like to live? <laughs>